From Brooklyn, New York, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Zach, before I ask you what you've been drinking, I have some pretty exciting news. That's the last time for the foreseeable future that that's going to be what the intro is. <gasps> I know. Oh, you were supposed to say why, but you are. You are. Oh, I, well, you told me. I just wanted me. you to pretend. I mean, I yeah, this. I did tell you already. <laughs> um, Sorry. Yeah. So Sorry, let's try this again. Let's again. Why, Adam? <laughs> so the Vine Pair executive editor, Joanna Chiarino, is joining the podcast as our Yay! third co-host. Yeah, so Joanna's awesome. She joined Vine Pair a few months ago. She previously was the executive editor at Food 52, for those of you listening. And then prior to that, uh, was helping to run Lucky Peach as uh, their managing editor. So she's super awesome. Uh, I I love her background. She has much more of a food background uh, than a drinks background, which is why she was like, I'm super intimidated to come on and talk with you and Zach. And I was like, please do not be. We are very nice. We only make fun of Zach on this podcast. And she's like, okay, cool. That's right. And she yeah. can do that just as well as you can. Maybe better. Exactly. And, and I'm super, I'm super excited to have her as, you know, with her background in food, sort of add to the conversations that we have, uh, you know, weekly about drinks. So uh, anyways, though, before we jump into today's topic, which again, would have been fun to have her uh, here for based on her, her background in food. Yes. What have you, what have you been up to, man? What have you been drinking and getting yourself into? Oh, well, you know, it's been, uh, it's been a week, uh, you know, did, uh, did the whole Mother's Day thing, although I had this whole elaborate plan. So, so my mom is very, like, she's a Francophile. And so she loves everything France. She and my stepdad lived in France for a little while. And my mom's been there a bunch of times and all that. And I had this whole idea where I was going to do like, you know, kind of make one of my mom's favorite kind of French cocktails, I guess, or like, you know, I mean, it's, it's basically just a Cure Royale. So sparkling wine and, and creme de cassis and i was like you know we have creme de cassis obviously it's sparkling wine my wife also really likes those so it's like perfect and then everyone sat down and i was like great who wants a cure royale and it was like crickets like when i was like oh you know i think i'm just gonna have coffee and caitlin was like oh yeah i think i'm just gonna drink coffee for now maybe later and then like i was like oh great well i had this cool idea planned but i guess we'll just eat. which was fine we had a lovely time and <laughs> like every every occasion needs drinks but uh but i do i do love that cocktail it's actually also one of the very first drinks when i when i like my first ever serving job one of my first shifts someone asked me for it and it was like the first moment i had where i was like someone's like oh uh, can you guys make a cure royale and i was like sure and in my head i was like i have no idea what that is i'm gonna go ask the bartender and i hope they don't yell at me and yeah. i went back there and i was like and they did they yelled at you. royale and they were like yeah that's fine i was like oh my god <laughs> i was like, like that thank you yeah i i quickly learned so yeah sweet dude that that sounds like that that would have been delicious had you gotten to make them yeah oh i, I should have added i had one the next day because i was like okay well, now i want one so i made good. myself one the next time <laughs> good so I have a question before we jump into what I've been drinking, which is you you mentioned this is a conversation I had earlier on another podcast. I was I was invited on another podcast. Oh. Yeah. And I sort of and the host asked me this question and you sort of mentioned it in terms of being the the server when someone orders something for you from you that you weren't aware of. How do you handle like when you go maybe you're not in Seattle, but how have you uh -huh. handled like so basically this host brought up that he that his, you know, his sister was really into gin and he brought her a bottle of gin for her birthday a few years ago. She doesn't live in the New York area. She lives somewhere outside Chicago or something like that. And um, he was like, Oh, this gin's perfect for Negronis. And she was like, what's a Negroni. And then they went out 
drinking and like the bartender didn't know what a Negroni was either. And I sort of mentioned my own story about like, oh yeah, I definitely have been, you know, when I visited home, I've gone to sort of like, you know, nice restaurants out with my parents and there's definitely drinks that I feel like everyone in New York is drinking that I've ordered and the bartender doesn't know what I'm talking about. And the question was like, how do you sort of handle that without being a snob? Right. Cause you don't want to be like, <laughs> well, ugh, I can't surprise you how grown is, but also you like, yeah. if you offer to teach them, is that also kind of like Dick, you know, you're like, well, let me show it's just three parts. One part, compar- you, you don't have Campari behind the bar. Yeah. Okay. Well, this isn't a bar program I want to be a part of, but uh, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> it's just, yeah. it's, you know, how do you do that? And I, I sort of said, I was like, I try to be as friendly as possible. Like if they don't agree, it's like, okay, it's fine. Cool. And if they ask, I'm like, no, 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 I'll make it for you anyways. And I'll say, okay, cool. It's, you know, it's equal parts X, Y, and Z in this case, gin, uh-huh. Campari, vermouth, you know, do you have those cool, you know, just it's a shot, a shot, a shot, stir it over ice. Don't worry about straining it, man. I'll just take it. It's fine. Um, yeah. But it is interesting. Like I, I, I wonder, you know, how do you do that? Because obviously, you know, we, we have different drinks experiences depending on where we live and then we travel somewhere else and we sometimes expect those same drink experiences and they're not there. And I think there's a lot of us who really don't want to come off as assholes, right? We don't want to uh-huh. be thought of as like the snob that's, oh, I'm coming from the city and I'm telling yeah. you what we're drinking there. But we also just want the drink that we're used to drinking. And sometimes it's just a force of habit. That's what you order. Um, so yeah. I don't know. Any tips? I think that, you know, generally speaking, so it's funny, this is like one of those things that has definitely evolved over the time that I've been in the restaurant industry. When I first started, like my first bartending experience was still like, we had like books behind the bar of like, you know, like a number of different writers, you know, cocktail books. And if someone ordered something that like, you know, because people would come up in all the time and order like, um, you know, like a Colt 45 or something, right? Like a cocktail that was just not in style at the time. And then I'd have to go like look up. I was like, I actually I said it and I know the name of the drink. I still don't remember what the hell's in it. Um, there's a lot of those. So like 80s era cocktails, like you know, what what exactly is in se- like sex on the beach? Like I've had that ordered for me before, but I definitely had to go look it up. Now, obviously, I would probably just look it up on my phone. Uh, but like so one way that the one way that the staff could do is kind of like what I explained, which is like, oh yeah, sure, let me go check on that. And then if it turns out they don't have Campari or something. Which, like, I would say 90% of bars have, like, a bottle of Campari somewhere. It might be dusty. The the lid might be, like, you know, basically glued shut from the, like, residual sugar. But it's in there somewhere. Um, I, I think, in general, like, the best way to do it is just to say, like, hey, this is what I'd like. And if they don't recognize the name, um, then you could sort of be like, oh, you know, I think it's, like, you know, maybe the best way to come off is a little, like, oh, I think it's like this, even if you know exactly how it's supposed to be made. And then... If they're like, oh, cool, I think our bartender or I think I can make that, great. And if they're like, oh, just be like, you know what, I'll have a something else, a gin and tonic or something, right? Like, I think it's kind of like, if they seem game, if they seem like, oh, cool, let's, I've never heard of that. Let me, maybe I'll make a little extra and try it myself. Like, I've definitely done that as a bartender too. Um, then that's one thing. And if they're like, uh, I don't know, maybe we can, then that might be the time to just be like, I'll have something else that they they can't do a gin and tonic, then, you know, that's a different kind of problem. Interesting. I, I support this. I support this. <laughs> what have you been drinking? So two things I want to tell you about. One is I had another orange wine this weekend. Uh-huh. Uh, I had a, no I had photos a though. At least I didn't see it on social media. Yeah. Trebbiano. Really cool from okay. uh, Umbria. Delicious. It was a producer. I wrote it down for you by the name of oh. Raina. R-A-I-N-A. Raina. 
okay. uh, Trebbiano Spolatino. It was pretty delicious. And yeah. I had it at, again, my probably favorite restaurant in Brooklyn right now, Lorena, uh, which is uh, in Fort Greene. They make all their pastas fresh. Everyone who works there is Italian. It's amazing. And I went there uh, on Sunday. And then another cool thing I did this weekend was I got to meet with this this chef, former chef named Patrick, who used to run um, the kitchen at a really great restaurant also in Brooklyn called Rucola. And he okay. you know, left uh, as a chef about a year ago, right as COVID was hitting. He started this sure. amazing Amari brand called Faccia Brutto. And that was very, that was very good, by the way. Dude, I love the, the name's That's great. That's a good Italian. Yeah. And it's interesting. He's bringing a chef's perspective to making Amaro. So we're working on okay. sort of the story about this right now. Cause I think there's, there's a lot of things that are really interesting about it. It's, I think Amaro is a very interesting beverage in that it really is a recipe. And I think the perspective he brings is, is much more chefy than, Okay. a beverage professional or a bartender. And by that, I mean, Amaro recipes don't scale like drinks recipes in which you can just take, you can double, triple, quadruple, and the proportions stay the same mm-hmm. and the drink stays the same. Amaro recipes, yep. as he's explained, are much more like pastry recipes for anyone that okay. is a is a baker, right? So like as, as you scale pastry, you actually really do have to start messing with the proportions. Because ultimately, okay. you know, if, if you take certain cakes and, and you just quadruple the sugar, they actually come out way sweeter than the cake was intended to. So, huh. which I, I didn't really realize, but then I was talking to Tim, obviously on staff, who's also a former executive chef. He's like, oh, yep, that's totally true. Like that's, you know, yeah. as a chef, like, yes, pastry, pastry recipes do not traditionally scale by just, you know – doubling, quadrupling, et cetera. So if you have been doing that at home, mm-hmm. maybe we've all been doing it wrong, guys. Yeah. But so he makes these incredible Amaros that are sort of inspired by Amari from Italy. So I also think what's cool about what he's doing is he's not like being like, oh, this is my version of a Brooklyn Amaro, right? And mm-hmm. I'm going and foraging in Park, you know, in, in Prospect Park. And then, you know, this is what goes on. He, he's really just, he's being like, I'm going to make really amazing versions of you know, Amari styles from Italy. So he makes a really amazing Sicilian okay. style. He makes a Braulino style that's delicious. He's making a Fernet that's really good. He makes an aperitivo and all of them are, you know, with all organic ingredients, really high quality base spirit, and then a lot less sugar, which okay. I mean, again, you know, for people, for someone who's into Amaro, I think you just kind of, I try to forget about how much sugar is in them, <laughs> but you really realize <laughs> it's, a, it's a lot of sugar. Um, yeah. and so he does it with less and, and he's just, he's doing some really, really dope stuff. And he just got, uh, picked up by, I think, I don't want to say who his importer is and then be wrong. So, but he just got a oh, distributor and be wrong, but he, he got picked up by a great distributor and he's, you know, I think you can find him in a lot of States now across the country. Um, but cool. it's Faccia Bruto and the stuff is really, really dope, but the bottle's great. And it's really well priced too, which I was for like a craft oh, nice. Amari. I was, I was pretty impressed because mm-hmm. he, I think he's. He's more. He's at least fifty percent less than like a lot of the stuff, at least that I that's getting made in Brooklyn right now. Wow. So yeah, check it. Well, out. those you know pro, those Prospect Park herbs don't come cheap. They do not come cheap. Um. Anyway, so speaking of money, uh, really interesting conversation today that was was suggested by a listener. So this listener was Paul Brady. So Paul's a is a is a friend of the podcast. Paul was a um former um sommelier at restaurants in New York, such as uh, Hearth. 
terroir, et cetera. And he's now up in the Hudson Valley um, working on opening a, his own wine bar, wine shop, all devoted to – mostly devoted to, to New York wines and spirits. We'll probably have him on at some point. But he emailed in and sort of posed this question, which I thought was really interesting, which was, you know, have we ever – is dynamic pricing – the potential solution for helping restaurants make a comeback. And so for those of you that aren't familiar with dynamic pricing, and I think it's a really interesting topic, so I, I'm super pumped to chat about it. So we experience dynamic pricing all the time. We just don't know. We just don't notice it. So what dynamic pricing is, is it's pricing that changes depending on the time of day or when you want to do something. So for example, if you buy a last minute plane ticket, you pay a premium. That's dynamic pricing. If you're willing to go to a matinee to see a blockbuster movie as opposed to Friday night at you know 9 p.m., you pay a cheaper price. That's dynamic pricing. Uh, if you happen to log on to Amazon at certain times and there's less demand, Amazon actually is always doing dynamic pricing, which I think a lot of people hmm. don't realize. Where, where you know they change by a few dollars, right? So when, when there's high demand, Amazon actually changes the price. They make the, they make it more expensive. It's interesting because Paul said every time he's ever brought up the idea of dynamic pricing in restaurants. Meaning, hey, if you take the table at 5 p.m. on a Monday night, you get a menu that's 25% cheaper than if you take the table on at 8.30 on a Friday. He's met with this whole like, how dare you talk about that? Like the price should be the same across the board no matter what. But the mm -hmm. rationale for thinking this way, and there's a few other people thinking about this as well, is – you know, how do we get butts in seats on slower days? And how do you reward people willing to take those earlier reservations? Because yeah. everyone basically is battling for basically what, – what is it, Zach? I mean from someone who's run a restaurant, it's like Thursday, Friday, Saturday night really, right? And like a very yeah, key, pretty much. And a very key time within that, which at least in New York is usually 7 to 9.30. It's like really when – like yeah. if you get a reservation in that time zone – you've that's a great reservation anything after 9 30 and you know you're dining pretty late and before seven and you got the early bird and you know you're going to get pushed so yeah. you know how do we is this a solution that says to people well yeah but if you take the earlier table and you're getting pushed you're willing to get pushed because you you pay 25 percent less or yeah. if you're willing to dine on a tuesday when the restaurant you know has staff sitting around doing nothing you get rewarded for 20 percent less like so yeah. I think it's a really interesting thing to consider. And I'm, I'm curious as someone who's worked in restaurants, what you think about this idea. Well, I think it's, it's this fascinating topic. And when you mentioned Paul's email, and thank you, Paul, we really appreciate it. Uh, it's always great to hear from, from our listeners and, and get suggestions because uh, they help us frame the show. Um, I think that, you know, this is a, it's been the bane of, of all restaurant employees to one way or another, where you have one of two kind of things happen, right? You you have, as you described, the nights where, you know, yeah, you're sitting around kind of doing nothing or you're waiting for the one push that comes, yeah, between, you know, you know starts at 6.30 and by 8.30, you know, all the tables that are going to come in are sat and that's just kind of it. And, and that is hard to staff for. It's hard to keep, to ask people to come in to open a restaurant at 4 or 4.30, but the, to know that they're not really going to be all that busy until 6 or 6.30 or 7 even. Um, you know, that's difficult on all ends. It's hard to, you know, it's hard to justify as an employer and it's kind of boring if you're the service staff. And I think that one of the things that's really changed over the last few years is that technologically doing this on a far more um, flexible level is, is possible. Because I mean, restaurants in one way or another have done this forever. I mean, we all know restaurants that have a different special, different days of the week. And the special on a Monday or Tuesday is probably a better deal 
than it is on a Friday or Saturday. And that's like, that was a very, very lo-fi way of doing like uh, dynamic pricing or something like that. But but the ability to to have a, a you know an algorithmic way to determine this based on you know demand and, and or parameters that are programmed in potentially to say you know we want to make it so that every possibility has its own kind of appropriate price structure, and I think the part that's get, that gets met with pushback is not the part that you've described, which is hey let's charge less on these off nights. It's the obvious corresponding part, which is let's charge more for a table that sits down at seven thirty on a Saturday night. And that is the part that I think rankles people, even though, even though, as you said, totally fairly, if you want to fly to Hawaii during peak season, you pay more than if you want to fly off peak. If you want to go to a movie in a lot of places now, as you said, it's more expensive to go peak nights, peak times, that you know, peak theaters than it is to go off peak. All we are, you know, shit, we see surge pricing with, you know, ride shares and stuff like that. Like we understand that nowadays it's much easier to to tie pricing into demand and supply dynamically than we used to be able to. But there is something about restaurants that and how people experience them that does resist the idea because people sometimes think of it like, well, I don't want to go to the grocery store and find that they're charging me more for a head of lettuce at whatever peak grocery store time is versus at, you know, off peak time. And and I think that it just goes back to this idea that restaurants are not, you know, they're not merely places that provide sustenance. I mean, yes, sure. And I don't know that, you know, IHOP is going to add in dynamic pricing, or maybe they will. I don't know. Um, They probably could, could, they have the data for sure. Um, But, you know, if you go to a a relatively nice restaurant, the kind of place that we're talking about doing this for, you were going for a lot of things. And it is not, repeat, not exclusively just to be fed. Um, If that is your purpose, then I think you're making kind of a bad choice. uh, Because it's, it's just uh, there's a lot else that you're paying for, even if you're not paying dynamic pricing, than just the the calories you're consuming. And so if we think of food and restaurants as, you know, entertainment, and, and I think that is the right way to think about them in a lot of ways, then yeah, of course, all pretty much all their forms of entertainment are already set this way. Like that is just how pricing works. So I don't know, or do you hear other objections than just kind of the oh, it's unfair to people to ask them to pay more at peak times? Because that would be the big objection that I typically hear. I mean, so I think the, the the response that I have is, well, what if just what they pay at peak times is what is normal? You know what I mean? But again, I think it's potentially all, the way that it should be, the way it should be sort of structured is this is the, these are the normal prices and these are, and these mm-hmm. are discounts. Um, I mean, the other, you know, the other pushback that I think people give is, well, but that is the time I want to go. That is the time I'm able to go, right? And yeah, to that I say, well, that's the same way the travel industry works, right? There is a lot of us that can only travel certain months of the year because of other prior commitments, whether it's work, whether it's families, whether it's whatever. And them's be the breaks. Like, yeah, and you want to go home for Christmas, you pay for it. Right. If you want to travel in August when everyone else does, or you want to take, you want to go on spring break with your family during that one week when everyone else does. You know, look, I got to tell you, if you are ever able to travel in October, you should do it. It's a fucking dream. It is yeah. absolutely amazing to travel in October. Yeah, Europe, 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 in, Europe in the late fall is fantastic. It is amazing. <laughs> Agreed. It is amazing. There is no tourists. It's an incredible experience. You know, you should go. And look, if that means you have a family, you got to pull your kids out of school, you got to pull your kids out of school. Like, you know, there there are trade-offs. Again, like maybe that's a better education in some in some senses. They can make up the work. 
But again, like if you're a parent that's able to figure out how to get a babysitter on a Tuesday or Wednesday night as opposed to a Friday night, then you should be rewarded for that. And look, at some point too, maybe the maybe the babysitter is actually more affordable on a Tuesday or Wednesday. I don't know. I don't have kids, but like potentially that's true, right? Maybe you can get a better rate because you're also not, you know, in a bidding war with other parents yeah. who are trying to book the yeah. same babysitter for the same Friday or Saturday night. And I think that's the biggest pushback I, I think I hear is not just that it's more expensive, but that this isn't fair because this is the time when I can go. But that shouldn't be like I don't know that like that's not anyone else's problem. Like, look, I mean, like first of all, I think the other thing that's insane that we don't talk about a lot, but we should with this is like we've already had dynamic pricing in the bar industry forever. It's called happy hour. Yeah, and I've missed happy hour in New York every year that I've lived here because happy hour in New York is five to seven for the most part, or usually or four to six depending on where you go. And I've never had a job where I've gotten out earlier than six thirty. Right, which means yeah. that like I've never made a happy hour. And guess what? Like that kind of sucks for me, but that's the reason these bars are doing it because most New Yorkers are at their jobs until six thirty or seven. And these bars yeah. are trying to get people in earlier. At seven, they're gonna be slammed <laughs> with a lot of yeah. overworked New Yorkers who can't wait to have a drink or two. So like, you know, that's just again, that that's the situation. But letting letting the the bar, the restaurant give some sort of carrot to get that extra revenue, I think is a really good thing. Um, mm-hmm. You know, giving them these, these ways to get people in. And again, some restaurants have done it right. I, there, there was a restaurant I know, I think it was right after the 2008 recession. They used to do a, a late night. They used to do late night pricing. I forget where it was now, but I know it was like, if your table was like after nine 30 or 10, it was oh. a shorter menu, but it was still, it was a nicer restaurant and they wanted to do one more turn. And I think yeah. that they did really well and they, they were able to like come out of the recession because of that. But again, there's this resistance to it is like, why should we do that? But I think, look, there's as if, if you are someone who listens to this, who is a bar, you know, a bar owner, a restaurant owner, like there are a lot of benefits to it. As long as again, it's legal in your state. That's the other problem is there's a lot of states that have like outlawed happy hour, which I don't, I don't understand for the life of me. But if you can play with these financial models, you know, it helps because again, if you, you have to do something in order to increase demand, right? That's how economics yep. work. If the price is the price every single day, every single hour, the same price is the same price, then people don't have incentives to ever go on days that are a little bit less convenient for them, right? The only yep. thing right now that drives people to take inconvenient reservations is when you are that hot restaurant, right? Yep. When you're the hot restaurant, people are willing to come to you at 1030 if that's when they can get a table or Sunday night at 830 when they never usually go out to eat on Sunday nights, that kind of stuff, right? But not everyone is the hot restaurant for, ver- for forever, right? And yeah. you know, even in New York, there are restaurants that like are hot, but they don't stay hot for more than a, a year or two. And then like they're still hot on the weekends. They're still the places everyone remembers. But on a Monday or Tuesday night, you know, they are more quiet and yeah. And that is when I think they need help. The other thing I think that's interesting that Paul brought up about this, which is even less than, you know, different days, which I'm curious about what you think is, is there a way to reward people who pick up last minute cancellations? So mm. this is, this is a, um, a model that this app talk is playing with, yeah, which is, you know, a restaurant reservation platform, but basically like if you're Gramercy Tavern and you had a tasting menu reservation on a Tuesday for, you know, 930 and at 730 or 8, that person cancels, 
there's probably there's a pretty big likelihood you're not going to refill that you're you're not going to rebook that reservation. It's like it's an hour and a half before, and it's as we said, it's a slow night. But what yeah. if you were eight? What if you offered that reservation on the platform for twenty five percent less, thirty yeah. percent less, right? So now you're incentivizing some people to go and get a discounted tasting menu. I think that's also yeah. super interesting. And like, why not? Well, and it connects back to this what you talked about before, which is like last minute travel, because we both know there's both there's both you know, you pay a lot of money, but also sometimes you get incredible deals, right? Like airlines recognize, hotels recognize, et cetera, that like unused inventory, like they're flying the plane somewhere regardless. And if there's a seat they can sell, they can fill for, you know, maybe less than they would have hoped, but it's, it, they're flying there one way or the other. So they might as well have a paying passenger in that seat, basically. And so I think it requires a level of, you know, there, there's going to be a subset of diners who can be that flexible, who can say, you know, hey, we want to go out tonight, but we're going to wait until seven o'clock to see what opens up and what's a, the best deal near us. And then we'll go for it. And uh, yeah, I think, you know, again, we, we, we have to recognize, and, and you started this out in, I think the correct framing, which is like the model that existed pre pandemic had a lot of problems with it. And that we've gone over many of them on the podcast. We will continue to go over them. But one of them was definitely this, that, that unless you were that hot shit restaurant, you had a lot of dead fallow time in your service, you know, no matter what you tried to do, there just was going to be time when you were not able to draw in guests and dynamic pricing is a technique and a methodology that these restaurants could use. Obviously not every restaurant is going to do it. And in the end you run up against one of the other pre pandemic problems that was true, which was also just oversupply, right? You know, uh, you may find that dynamic pricing works. um, But if you, if you don't have, more people who are interested in dining at five o'clock for whatever reason, you're, you're sort of just fighting over a shrinking, the same small pool. And now you've lowered your prices. Some that said, I think that that might be, I don't think that's going to be a huge problem. I think right. part of it is we don't know if people are incentivized to dine early or if, if, if people are incentivized to dine early, will they do it in larger numbers because it actually has a meaningful effect on their check at the end of the night. Because I think most people go, well, yeah, I don't want to eat at five unless I'm going to a show at seven, you know, or something else. Basically, I want to eat at a normal dinner time for most people, you know, six thirty seven, seven thirty eight, whatever, because that's the centerpiece of my evening, or I'm going to something later, or whatever. But if it, like you said, if there was a real financial reward, not a free appetizer, not five percent off, but yeah, you know, twenty twenty five percent off or something like that, I do think a lot of people would go, well, you know, yeah, I don't really want to eat at five thirty, but I would like on our four top. I'd like to save a hundred bucks. That would be nice. So maybe it's worth it to all of us to go out to eat early and then we'll do something else, right? There are other activities we can do after, after dinner. I also wonder, you know, the other piece of this that, that I think is complicated and, and, but also tied in and you mentioned talk and it makes me think of this too, is like, you know, with restaurants that have, you know, set like tasting menus where there's really for them an even bigger um, both incentive to fill the seat, but also real cost potentially if someone kind of cancels last minute, because it's not, you know, you're not going to get people walking into a tasting menu only or a, a restaurant that focuses on tasting menus being like, hey, do you have a table for two? Like people think of those places as like places you have to make reservations for. There aren't walk-ins really. I wonder if the dynamic model, how that works for places that are a little more casual, that like if there's a way for them to, to kind of capitalize on this and maybe it is the matter of a platform that pushes out or makes available to people all this information. I don't know. I, I guess I'm wondering, you know, if in your head, Adam, you have a sense for like how broadly applicable this model could be. 
I think it could be super applicable in cities. I think, you mm-hmm. know, potentially in, in you know, actually, it could be, I think it'd be pretty applicable most places, right? Like, look, I mean, the other thing is that this model has kind of existed in like parts of Arizona and South Florida for ever since my grandparents moved down there. It's called the early bird menu. You know, like yeah, for sure. So, so I, I, so I think you know, I'm just correcting myself in my own as I'm talking that like it's not just a city thing where this could work. Like this clearly worked in you know West Palm Beach and you know play, you know Scottsdale for years, right? Like there's a there's a group of people yeah. that is willing to come in and eat earlier for a savings. Also, as we get older, our bedtimes become earlier, but like they're they're willing, they're willing to come in earlier. And then, you know, I used to go to, I used to go to restaurants. I used to hate early bird menu, man. When I was like in high school, I used to like say, like, why are we going to this restaurant so early? My mom would be like, because this is when your grandparents want to eat. And I'd be like, okay, fine. But you know what? Then we would leave the restaurant and it would be packed with people my parents' age and my age at the time, you know, who happened to live yeah. in those areas. And I think that was also a really beneficial thing for the restaurants. The restaurants, you know, made a killing, a killing that way. And it's interesting that we've never done that at other places, but we we, we should. I think it's applicable everywhere. Like the theater menu exists. You know, that's a little bit different yeah. in around Broadway because it's more of like we promise to get you out in a certain time with a yes. quick price fix. But like it does work. And so I feel like these are things that we really – need to continue to think about as we evolve as a as a restaurant culture and especially you know as we're coming out of covid this is like the perfect opportunity for us to play with models and create something that works to get more people in the door and that also works for customers yeah and in the end yeah it's true that you know this might mean that if you are dead set on the primo restaurant primo time slot primo day you might pay primo prices but like again as we said at the top like that is true for almost everything else. And I have yet to hear a convincing reason why a restaurant meal should be exempt from any of the rules of supply and demand that govern basically everything else we consume in the world. I completely agree. Zach, this is a super interesting conversation. Uh, if you're a listener out there, we'd love to know what you think about dynamic pricing. Uh, shoot us an email at podcast at vinepair.com. As well, if you have topics you'd like to hear us discuss, you're interested in stuff, especially as Joanna joins the podcast, hit us up, yes. podcast at vinepair.com. And Paul, man, dude, great question. Thank you so much for emailing it in. This gave jo- you know Zach and I a lot to think about. I almost called Zach Josh, which is hilarious. Uh, that's okay. And, uh, and yeah, Zach... I'll talk to you next week. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast. If you love this show as much as we love making it, then please leave us a rating or review on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever it is you get your podcasts. It really helps everyone else discover the show. Now for the credits. Vine Pair is produced and recorded in New York City and Seattle, Washington by myself and Zach Jabal, who does all the editing and loves to get the credit. Also... I would love to give a special shout out to my VinePair co-founder, Josh Mallon, for helping me make all this possible. And also to Keith Beavers, VinePair Tasting Director, who is additionally a producer on this show. I also want to, of course, thank every other member of the VinePair team who are instrumental in all of the ideas that go into making this show every week. Thanks so much for listening, and we'll see you again.